Hi, and welcome to the Bookish Besties podcast. We're excited you're here with us to talk all things books and reading. We are two friends brought together by our love of reading. I'm Diane and adore my beach life in Charleston, South Carolina with my family and dogs. Reading has been a pleasure my whole life. I read to travel when I cannot leave home, to escape when life gets to be too much, to learn even when I'm not in school anymore, and to make new friends on the pages of stories and by talking to those who share my passion. And I'm Mary, a northerner living in the frozen tundra of Madison, Wisconsin. I've been an avid reader for as long as I can remember and make a point to read every day while still balancing the challenges of work and life. My ideal is to be curled up by the fire with the dog on my lap, a glass of wine on the end table, and a good book in my hands. We would be most grateful if you would rate and review our podcast. It really does help others to find us. Thank you so much and happy reading. Welcome to episode five of the Bookish Besties podcast. Today, Mary and I are honored to have Patty Callahan Henry with us to talk about her new book in paperback release, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Patty Callahan Henry is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of 15 novels, including the historical fiction Becoming Mrs. Lewis, the improbable love story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. In addition, she's the recipient of the Christie Award, a 2019 winner book of the year, the Harper Lee Distinguished Writer of the Year for 2020, and the Alabama Library Association Book of the Year for 2019. She is here to talk about her new paperback release of Becoming Mrs. Lewis. It released last week, and not only is it in paperback, it's an expanded edition. Yeah, Patty, tell me about that. It's really exciting. And, you know, it's also really hard to have an expanded paperback edition out in the middle of all this chaos while everybody's trying to figure out what to do. Bookstores are closed. Amazon's not shipping. So before I even get started, I want to encourage everybody to buy from your independent bookseller, including Diane. And I will send that her signed book plates. I will send anything you need because we cannot come out on the other side of this without our bookstores. It's going to be yes. bad enough. We can't come out on the other side without our bookstores. So now that I've gotten that little sermon out of the way, <laughs> the, we were and are very excited about the expanded paperback edition because what we were able to do was take all the things that we've been talking about for the last 15 months while the hardcover's been out and put it in the back of the paperback. So there is an expanded discussion guide. There's links to the podcast I did where I interviewed all the experts about Joy and Jack. There's um, a couple essays I wrote. There's a map. There's a timeline of their lives which so many people were asking for because their lives are so beautiful and so complicated. And they both wrote and did so many things with their life that a timeline is really nice to be able to look at and say, well, where did he publish The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe compared to when they met? When did she publish Smoke on the Mountain compared to when he wrote the foreword for it? So you can always just flip to the timeline and look. So the expanded edition is really for people who love historical fiction and really want to know even more than is in the first edition. You know, it struck me. I loved, I loved all the goodies in the back of the new paperback, but they, this wonderful, amazing love story, they were not married very long. 
No. So we'll start with saying that the um, story of this novel is based on a totally improbable love story between C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman. And although it was a decade-long relationship and profound and deep friendship that changed both of their lives forever, irrevocably changed their lives, they were only married for three years. Now, both of them say it was the happiest three years of their life. But at the same time, it is so bittersweet and tragic because it is also, you know, such a short time for something so hard won. Right, right. Now, do you want to give a little bit of a synopsis about... Absolutely. Okay, start us with Becoming Mrs. Lewis. So, so the Becoming is Joy. So I always like to start with one of my favorite quotes by Joy Davidman, and that is, if we should ever grow brave, what on earth would become of us? Love that. Isn't that such a beautiful question? Mm -hmm. Especially in this time we're going through right now, if we should ever grow brave, what on earth would become of us? And the... The thing I loved about the question was not only the question itself, but where she put the words. Because Joy Davidman was by trade at an award-winning and profoundly beautiful poet. Yeah. So she always put the words in the just right place. And for this, she put the word grow in the just right place, and she put the word become in the just right place. So if we should ever grow brave, what should ever become of us? And she wrote this in an essay in the front of a book called Smoke on the Mountain. And I rushed through the essay trying to find the answer to that question. And she didn't answer it in the essay. And I realized that that was because she answered that question with her life. And every decision she made from that moment on answered the question, what would become of us if we should ever grow brave? And one of the ways that she answered that question was by writing a letter to C.S. Lewis, which was a really brave act. She was an atheist. She was a married mother of two. She was, had been a communist. She was of Jewish heritage. To write to one of the world's most famous Christian apologists was a brave act. Across the ocean, a man she'd never met and really had no chance of ever meeting. So she wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis with all of her spiritual questions, and he wrote her back in January of 1950, and that started a three-year pen friendship until in August of 1952, Joy Davidman boarded a ship to England alone, and for many reasons that you can read about in the novel, but one of them was to meet her friend C.S. Lewis, who she called Jack, and who his friends called Jack. And I always say that her getting on that ship is where the story gets really good. Yes. And not because it gets easy, but actually the opposite, because it gets anything but easy. They both have so many internal and external obstacles to overcome that that's where the story is profoundly beautiful. You know, one thing that I loved um, in the very beginning when she wrote the first letter, really she and her husband, she did the writing, but they had questions. She and her first husband, Bill, had so many questions. And I think one thing that set the tone and the cadence for the, their whole 
relationship is that it took him six months to write her back. Yes. You know, and oh, how I miss the days of writing a letter, sending it off across the seas, right? He was in Europe and he was in England. She was in New York state and it took him time. And then he wrote back and sent it back. And that, that patience and that waiting and that seeking mm -hmm. was all so, such a defining part of their whole relationship. And I loved that. It, absolutely. And, you know, here we are, we're on email and someone doesn't answer us immediately. We're like, refresh, refresh, refresh. <laughs> like right. when you're waiting for a letter to come in the mail. And I think it also allowed them both to answer much more thoughtfully than we might in firing off a quick email. You have the time to think about it. You can rewrite it. You, um, C.S. Lewis wrote by hand. I think she typed most of hers, but Lewis only wrote by hand and with an ink pen. And that, that time that you take to thoughtfully answer and thoughtfully put your words on paper. And we know, even though all the letters are lost to time, we know that they spent, that they asked each other the deeper questions of their life that those letters consisted of the most important things in their life, what they were thinking, what they were doing, what they believed, what they didn't believe. And so that leisurely, thoughtful, slower way of communicating allowed them to grow very close without ever meeting face to face. Right. It was so lovely. You start chapter two, you start chapter two by this quote, didn't most everything begin with words? In the beginning, there was the word. Even the Bible touted this as truth. So it was with my friendship with Lewis. I love that. You know, as, as obviously Mary and I are a huge lover of books and, and you as well are a lover of the words and the written word. And it's such a gift to be able to, you know, have a little peek into this wonderful relationship with these two amazing and, and let's say joy was just as gifted and talented and intellectual and and wonderful as c.s lewis i mean she was a prolific writer in her own right so what i find so interesting there's so many things i stumbled on that i'd never heard about either of them but what is so interesting is that they were both just as talented in different ways and they were both just as brilliant they were both literal geniuses Joy could read by three years old. She graduated from high school when she was 14. But Joy wanted to be better at prose. She tried her hand at a couple novels and she just, honestly, as much as I love her, wasn't that great at it compared to her poetry. Where her poetry, she won the Yale Younger Poets Award. She was mm -hmm. revered for her poetry. Her poetry was published. Then you go over to C.S. Lewis and he was better at prose. You know, he had lots of novels and, and, uh, and apologetics. And um, he had the screw tape letters and the problem of pain and the great divorce and Paralandra and of course Narnia. And his, most, his best novel, in my opinion, which is called Till We Have Faces and is a retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche that Joy co-wrote with him. But Lewis wanted to be a poet. That was his original goal. And so here you have this brilliant and, and revered man in prose who had wanted to be a poet. The first thing he ever published was poetry. And it just, it never stuck for him. He never was as good at it as he wanted to be. And meanwhile, here comes this woman who is this renowned award-winning poet. And the way that they were able to meld their skills and meld who they were together, Joy has this 
beautiful quote talking about helping Lewis with his prose when he was writing Till We Have Faces and some other things. And, and she admits that she's not as good at that part of it as he is. But she said, what I am good at, and this isn't exact, but it's the gist, what I am good at is helping him write more like himself. Mm. Mm. That's awesome. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, it really is. You know, one of the things that I noticed when I was reading, when I was reading the novel is how you approached telling this story. And the thing that I really liked is you, you treated your readers with intelligence. Mm -hmm. Um, I really, I really liked how you let the reader's imagination go with the story of Joy and, and Jack. Uh, can you tell me like how, how you approached writing this novel and, and why you chose that way of describing this? Well, Mary, thank you for the kind words. I, I approached it with respect because they were both so intelligent. And mm -hmm. so to dumb them down to make you more comfortable wasn't my goal at all. My goal was 100% to somehow make it, which was a big task, and sometimes I did it and sometimes I didn't, but to make their intelligence and their relationship and the way that they bantered and the way they talked and the way they fell in love also accessible. So when I first started to write the book, I knew that I was going to tell it 100% from her point of view. I knew that we had enough in the world from Lewis's point of view. We had Shadowlands. We have a couple other mm -hmm. books about his grief when she died, what, how much he loved her, how she changed his life, that he, who he was because of her. And I wanted to know about her. Like, how did she get there? How did she show up in his life? Here we have this, you know, married, atheist, materialist woman with two children in upstate New York, and then this Oxford Don across the ocean in England in a man's man's world. How, how he lives with his brother, he teaches at an all-male college, he's part of an all-male writing group, the Inklings, he's surrounded by a man's man's world. How did these two ever come together? So when I first started to research her, I kind of found, not kind of, I found two Joy Davidman camps. I found this kind, this old narrative about this brash New York woman who inserted herself into Lewis's life, please. And then over here, I found this, the, the, the people who talked about her as being this brilliant, amazing, profoundly interesting woman who who changed Lewis for the better for the rest of his life. And I couldn't reconcile these two narratives. So I decided very early on that I was tired of hearing about her and I only wanted to hear from her. So that's how I approached it. I, mm. I read her poetry, I read her essays, I read her novels, I delved into her letters, I went and looked at her personal papers. And lucky for us, um, about 10 years ago, a box was found at her best friend's house in Oxford, England, that contained 300 unpublished poems of Joy's. And in wow. that box, I know, and short stories. It's like a treasure trove. It's a treasure chest hidden in the yeah. back of a closet for all these years. And in that box was a folder. And on that folder was written the word courage. And inside was a cover letter, and it was 45 love sonnets to C.S. Lewis. 
So we don't have to guess what she thinks. She tells us. Oh. Is there plans to, is there, is that all going to be published somewhere somehow? It is. You can read it. There's um, a man, a brilliant man who I interview on my behind the scenes of Mrs. Lewis, um, Becoming Mrs. Lewis podcast. And his name is Don W. King. And he is a professor, um, a doctorate professor at Montreal College. And he is the world's probably leading expert on Joy's work. So he has published her letters, her poetry. He does critical studies of her work. So there's two, not, two books out that are a compilation of her poetry and one book out that is a compilation of her letters. Oh, I will be seeking those out. I think mm -hmm. after, after you and I spoke a couple of years ago, I went and I found an old, I don't know if um, A Naked Tree has been republished, but at the time that you and I spoke, it was out of publication. And so I found an old copy at a used bookstore in New Orleans. And I, I just have read it over and over and I just love her words. Yep. That's Don W. King. So he published A Naked Tree and it's, it's all back in print. I like to think but, it's because of me, but I doubt it. But yes, it's, you can get, um, one is called Yet One More Spring. One is called A Naked Tree. Those are both books of her poetry. And then there is a, there's just a compilation of Joy Davidman letters. Uh, what a treasure trove for sure. I know. Like I said. So we're, did, have you been a lifelong C.S. Lewis fan? Like did, did love of C.S. Lewis lead you to Joy? How did you get to Joy? Exactly. So I've been a C.S. Lewis reader all my life, um, or as far as back as I can remember. So my dad was a preacher, is a preacher. I guess once a preacher, always a preacher. Like once a nurse, always a nurse. Yeah. But he, so his bookshelves were lined with C.S. Lewis books. So very early on, I think from my first memory of finding him is reading the Screwtape Letters. And I think I read it when I was 12 years old, which is way too young to read the Screwtape <laughs> yeah. Letters. I was, I was quite certain that Satan was behind every bush trying to get me. But, um, but then, of course, I fell through the wardrobe door of Narnia and read mm. all of Narnia and then Pilgrim's Regress, The Problem of Pain. I, I'm fairly sure I've read almost everything he's ever written. I think only the C.S. Lewis scholars have read everything. But, um, and what was fascinating for me about Lewis is that you could have read a book 10 years ago and then pick it up now and it is a completely different book. I mean, I think it's that way with most novels, good novels, is that they're living things. So they change with mm -hmm. time because you change with time. So they change with time. And so I've always been enamored of his work, even when there were years when I didn't read it at all. And I knew about her, but I only knew about her as the woman in Shadowlands. And I only knew about her as the woman in A Grief Observed. And I just started to get curious about her bigger life and how she even showed up there and who she was. And I think what fascinated me the most before I started researching her was how in the world they ever got together. Because she was a married atheist in upstate New York with two little kids and he was an Oxford dog. Like, what? So, <laughs> At first, the interest came more in like, how did that happen? And then it turned into, um, oh, this is way more than how did it happen. It's, it's the story of a transformational journey. Yeah. I was, um, oh, sorry, Diane, I'm going to hop in. 
So I was, uh, I was creeping on your Instagram recently. Oh, great. Maddie. Everybody should creep on my Instagram. That's what yep. Instagram is for. Creep away. Exactly. You, you, you need to do that. Um, and I saw that you were recently in England. Mm, you went to Oxford. So tell us a little bit about that and, and what was that, was that, well, was that joy related? Yes, it was joy related. Okay. So, and I got back in the nick of time right before all this craziness hit. Literally, like even two more days, I would have been nervous. So Mm -hmm. it was, it was about a month ago. So I got home right in the nick of time. But um, when I was researching this book, I organized a trip called In the Steps of Joy. And I went to all the places that you read about in the novel. So any place that's in the novel I visited except her farmhouse in New York, because whoever lives there right now would probably think I was a creeper and Edinburgh. And you're only in Edinburgh for two pages. But otherwise I organized a trip when I was writing the book um, where I visited everywhere that she visited, everywhere that you visit in the book, because I really wanted the book to be infused with a sense of place because I believe joy felt just as much in love with London and Oxford as she did Jack. I think it was so braided together, the place and the person, that you couldn't pull those strings apart and have the same story. And so I really wanted you as the reader to feel how she felt when she went to London and Oxford. And the only way I could do that was to go there. And once again, lucky for us, London and Oxford are not that different right now than they were in 1950. London, of course, um, has healed from some of the bombed out spaces I talk about in 1952 that still existed. But on the whole, Oxford is pretty much the same. Every place that's in the novel is exactly the same, except the Eastgate Hotel, which has been renovated. But Maudlin College and Addison's Walk and the kilns are all restored or the same. So that was about two years ago, when, or three years ago now, when I did all of that. Well, then my UK publisher is in London. My HarperCollins UK publisher is in London. And Becoming Mrs. Lewis was shortlisted for a historical fiction award in the UK. And so they brought me out there. And we went back and visited some of the places that my publisher hadn't been that are in the novel. So we went back and we went to Maudlin again and we went to the kilns. And I have to tell you, it was kind of an emotional experience for me because I hadn't been back since I wrote the novel. Okay. And when I went back, one of the things I got to do that I wasn't able to do the first time was climb the tower at Maudlin College. And not anybody can do it. And you, when I first went, the, the tour guide I had wouldn't let me. But um, through a little bit of some string pulling, this time I was able to climb the tower at Maudlin. And it was a purely English day. Cold, raining sideways, mm-hmm. wind whipping. Not the kind of day you want to stand on top of a tower overlooking Oxford, but I didn't care. Hair was wet, I was wet and cold, but I was standing on the top of Maudlin Tower where Joy and Jack went numerous times and took her sons up there a couple times too. So it was it was kind of a profound experience. But yes, I got to revisit it. Oh, and when I went to the kilns, my book 
was sitting in the common room where Joy and Jack lived. Oh my gosh, that's perfect. I cried and, and I'm not, wow. I cried. So to see her story sitting in the room she lived in mm. and spent all her time with him and where they fell in love was, was surreal. That sounds, that, I'm choking up. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, me too, me too. Um, wow, that, that, that just, what an incredible experience, you know, to, to, to visit again, walk those footsteps again that they walked, and then, you know, to, to see that in the common room. I, yeah, that just sounds perfect to me. I feel, and I feel like sometimes, and it's not just me, it's, it's you know, other historical fiction, um, when we bring these women back and honor them in a new way, really synchronistic and serendipitous things happen. Um, when we are trying to honor them, and, and I always say she when I talk about the book instead of it. I'll say she was nominated for this, or she won that, or she, she and I got to travel together to, to Europe. So um, I feel like she goes with me because this isn't my story. I did the work. I did the research, I put my butt in the chair, I edited, I fixed it, I spent years of my life on it, but it isn't my story, it is hers. This is her story. So in many ways, I feel that any good that's come of it has been because of her courage and her bravery and her choices, and that we're just honoring her in this way now. Mm -hmm. Well, this, this book honors her beautifully. Patty, it's, I've just, before we spoke, I finished my third reading. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Well, and That's probably more than my family. That's impressive. <laughs> I went to get my copy, like my hard copy, and I didn't have it. And then I remembered, I literally think I've bought it six or seven times because I keep giving it to people. And my paperback oh. edition is, um, it was up in one of my children's rooms, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, I, but I found the real book, but I'm like, I know I bought this in paperback several times. I guess I've just given it away more than I've bought it. <laughs> That's, um, that makes me very happy. That makes well, me very happy. And I hear I, that a lot. The people say, oh, you need to read this now. And, and I love that. Yeah. yeah. I, I switched between the audio and then the book. Oh, like, how was that? You know, the, the narrator was fantastic. Oh, she good. did like, all the voices and you know like when the kids were talking she i mean i thought she was did a very good job it was pretty enjoyable listening okay. to her it's too weird to listen to your own words in someone else's voice sure so sure. i haven't listened to it so it, i i liked it i liked it i try and you know if i'm working or something or doing a puzzle because i've been doing puzzles lately all the time yeah. oh i've been walking around with audiobooks because during this time don't you find that your concentration is a little off Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's lots yeah. of distractions. A lot. And a lot of people in the house that usually aren't in the house. So I've been listening to a lot of audio. I mean, I always do because I'm used to traveling, which I'm obviously not doing right now, unless I'm traveling mm -hmm. from my computer to the kitchen. And <laughs> social distancing is easy, but pantry distancing hasn't been that easy. And, <laughs> and, um, and I just like, instead of ruminating constantly about what might happen in these days, I've been listening to audiobooks and podcasts. And mm -hmm. like so this was your very first 
historical fiction novel, correct? Yes. Uh, do you plan on continuing down this road with historical fiction? Like, do I definitely am. And so yeah. the the bug has bit. <laughs> okay. Bit me. When I was a nurse back in the day, and I was in graduate school. I was a research nurse for a bit so that I could work regular hours and, and sure. go to school and not work night shift and all of that, which I was doing at a children's hospital. So I have always loved research. I love finding the little fact that brings what seems dry and old and historical and makes it come alive. And I even loved doing that in my contemporary novels. I loved doing enough research that the book would come alive in a different way, depending on what I found. And so with historical fiction, it's even bigger. The stakes are even higher with your research. So the novel that I just finished, um, well, I finished it in December, comes out next March, March 4th of 2021, unless the world blows up before then. And no, it's it, not going to. It's not going no, to. <laughs> actually going to be fine. Everything's going to be all right. What What does Julian of Norwich say? All will be well. All will be well. And all, all matter of things, things will be shall well. be well. Yeah. I say it all day. Yeah. But <laughs> it is the historical true story of the sinking of the steamship Pulaski, which had taken off with all the elite of Savannah and heading north for oh. the Sanks off the coast of North Carolina. Yes. It sank off Wilmington, yes. And they found it two years ago. And so I have a dual timeline story of a modern day museum curator who is working with the treasure hunters. And then we dip into that night to see what happened. And we go back and forth as they bring up these artifacts and we discover what really happened that night. We bring up the stories along with the treasure and the artifacts. So the story is very much about not just finding the past at the bottom of the ocean, but what I call, how do we survive the surviving? Mm. I can't wait to read this one. I, know. <laughs> I can't wait for you to read it either. I've been yeah. working on it for two and a half years. Okay. And working with the treasure hunters and with the museum and with the Georgia Historical Society. And there is no one book on this wreck. Okay. So it took me a long time. It would have, it probably wouldn't have taken me as long if there had been a book about it. Like, mm -hmm. for example, the Titanic or the, the, you know, some of the other more famous wrecks. There are loads of books about them. The Pulaski is the name of the ship. And it, it only has some articles and some accounts. There is and maybe a chapter in a book here and a chapter in a book there, but there's no one place that compiled, compiled the entire data and the entire story, which is what I did for this. Yeah. Time. I don't think I've ever heard of this, this shipwreck, you know, and I've heard of the name Pulaski. It's, it's, you know, with Illinois, Wisconsin, Midwest, it's a very, um, Casimir Pulaski, you know, that yeah, name. He was but, the Polish maritime. He, he right, was, right. Known as the father of the cavalry and right. killed um, in a battle off the coast of Savannah. Okay. So there's a Pulaski Square, there's a Pulaski mm -hmm. Fort, there's all of that here in the South. So he, um, there's loads of things named after him. But the book right now is called Surviving Savannah. Okay. 
And that's coming out in, you said December? No, March 4th, March. 2021. Yep. Okay. Oh, March 4th, Patty, is a very special day for us, isn't it? It's an auspicious day. Yes. It is. Um, Patty and I were both um, big fans and, and dear friends of the late Pat Conroy, who- That's the day he died. That's the day he died. That's the anniversary of his death. And, and um, there is no one who wove a tale better. No one. <laughs> and what's fascinating too is um, it's the only date that is also a command, March 4th. March 4th. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So when they told me the pub date, I got chills. I was like, oh man, that's so auspicious because it's also very much about the South. It's about, which Pat wrote about all the time. And look, I get choked up. It's very much about um, how the new South mirrors the old South and how we're proud of being Southern, but also don't like to look at really what the history is. And so the ship took off in 1838, which is of course in the heyday and the abomination of slavery. And these passengers brought their slaves with them. And so you have to tell the truth in a story while simultaneously looking at who we are today. So -hmm. there's not only the story of the survivors, but this mirroring between the old South and the new South. And you know, you were you were mentioning about even in uh, becoming Mrs. Lewis, how Oxford and and London and all that place was a central part as a, a character almost in your story. That I think is very specific to Southern writers. I think I think the sense of place and that place being a character is something that is woven through in your, you know, in your other books with with that are just strictly fiction, but also. Um, in your becoming Mrs. Lewis, will Savannah? So they're from Savannah in the new book, but they don't. They're all on the ship. So, is it's they're still Southerners, right? Still right. Southern. And and not only that, but the main character in the modern day story runs a museum in Savannah. So we are very set in Savannah for um, most of the novel, except when we're at sea trying to survive. But the characters are from Savannah. They return to Savannah, the ones who live. There's obviously some who perish. And so the story is very much also about the history in the city of Savannah because the main character, that family that we follow in the historical section was a very famous Savannah family, a family that boarded with nine of its members. The father, the mother, the six children, the sister and the niece all boarded together for the fourth journey of this ship. And they were a very famous um, Savannah family called the Lamars. And so we follow them by following two of the women in that family. So it's narrated by three different women. But yes, Savannah is, I often say, people often say that settings are like a character. And I agree, you know, settings need to be as important as the characters. But for me also, this setting is the Petri dish from which the story grows. It is the medium from which the story evolves. And if you, if the story, if the setting isn't as important as the characters, then the story isn't gonna grow properly if it's not set in the right Petri dish or the right medium. That's the old nurse in me. I was gonna say, yeah, there's the the old nurse in me, yeah. We have so enjoyed our time with you, Miss Patty. We usually wrap up these author interviews with a rapid fire questions. 
Ooh, I love these. Go. <laughs> just five. You know, it's, it's a little bit of homage to James Lipton, who we just lost also, but um, he always wrapped his actor's studio with questions. Did he? Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has some great ones. Okay. What is your favorite word? Ooh. Ooh. Astonishing. Oh, that's a great one. Ooh. Who's your favorite fictional hero or heroine? Lucy from Narnia. Of course. What are you reading now? I am reading I Am Lucy Barton. On the the suggestion of my dear friend Paula McLean, who wrote The Paris Wife and Circling the Sun, we were texting about how to survive. I said, tell me one book that I have missed that that you love so much because I trust her. And she said, have you read I am Lucy Barton. I said, no, but there've been a couple I've loved recently. I just finished on the nonfiction side. Maybe you should talk to someone by Lori Gottlieb. Yes. Oh my (laughs) gosh. I feel like I could read it five times and still learn something. It was so great. It was wonderful. (laughs) Are you a completist or a DNFer? So if you start a book and it's not the right time, do you finish it no matter what, or do you did not finish on the shelf? Do not finish. In fact, there, I think we were just talking about how concentration is a, is a kind of an issue right now. And I started three unnamed books mm-hmm. that were recommended to me and put them up because I used to be a finish no matter what kind of person that I was, I loved being a student. That's um, why so I, I went back and got my master's and I like, I love being a student and you can never put a book up if you're a good student, like you have to plow through and finish, but I don't feel that way right now. If it isn't, if it isn't keeping my attention, it's for another time. And I bet y'all have had this experience where you start a book, you don't, you don't get into it, you put it up and then maybe two, three years later, you pick it up and all of a sudden you fall into its magic. Mm -hmm. So it's never, sometimes it's not about the book. It's about where I am at the moment. So. I think more than not, it's about where we are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, this is the last one. What is the best money you've ever spent as a writer for your craft, for your life as a writer? Books. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, you know, my, my library is ridiculous and their books are piled all over my house because they are the secret sauce. They're the juice. They're, they're, you know, you can't download everything. You can't borrow everything. I've never felt guilty about the money I have spent on books. Yeah. Mary and I had one of our first podcasts. I was <laughs> telling a story that as I was growing up, <clears throat> excuse me, my parents said no about a lot of things as parents need to do. But one thing they never said no about, much to my husband's chagrin right now, but they never said no yeah. about buying books. I yeah. my, for my brother for myself so um yeah we have thousands in our house and honestly this I can see them all behind you on this video there's many have. there yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> those are there um this quarantine is hard and and these times are hard for sure yeah. but um thank god for books we are yeah. so grateful and um you know we're going to keep flooding the independent bookstores with our orders they are doing shipping they're doing curbside deliveries they're doing pickups and different Different people have different levels of shelter in place or not shelter in place. But, you know, as Patty said at the beginning, we encourage everyone to keep 
your independent bookstores going when this, when we all come out from hiding, we want them to still be there. Yes. And I think we're all going to be in the same shelter in place boat soon. I know that there are areas worse affected right now, but no one's immune. And I think we're all going to be in the same boat sooner rather than later. So um, let's get in the habit of ordering from our indies. Let's get in the habit of going to their websites instead of elsewhere. Yes. Yes. So. Well, thank you so much, Miss Patty. It was a this has been the best part of my day. Thank hey. you so much. This has been another episode of the Bookish Besties podcast. Bookish Besties is a production of Tidal Wave Books, LLC, and is hosted by Diane Barnett and Mary Meist, produced by Lily Barnett. Find us on Instagram at Bookish Besties Podcast. Thank you for joining us in talking about all things bookish. We will see you next time. Mm-hmm.